Well, this morning, I invite you, if you have a copy of the Bible, to turn with me to Zechariah, or Zechariah chapter 5. And we have been, in, on Sunday mornings as a church family, working through this much neglected book of the Old Testament, and, but a very important book. It is, uh, in some ways, like uh, the book of Revelation in the New Testament. It is a glorious book about God's covenant, unfailing faithfulness to his people Israel. The name Zechariah means Yahweh or the Lord remembers. He doesn't forget. And this letter was written to a rather beleaguered, discouraged, ragtag group of exiles that returned from Babylon to Jerusalem. And it's given to encourage them in their work about rebuilding the temple, uh, being faithful and living out their lives as unto the Lord, even though all the other world, rest of the world may not. And it's a series of prophetic visions that God gave to this prophet. Zechariah at this time is a rather young man. He's, he's not very old. And uh, wow, is he being given a tour uh, of these visions in the night and by the way, this is very unusual. This is not the norm. We shouldn't expect this. This is very few people uh, in history received revelations like this. In, in fact, a few weeks back, we saw that the book of Zechariah uh, in chapter four contains uh, one of the most, I'm sorry, chapter three contains one of the most unique scenes in the scripture where we have a, he sees a scene of the very throne room of God with the angel of the Lord, that is Christ, Joshua, the high priest of Israel, standing there, and Satan. It's the only place in Scripture we, we have an eyewitness of that scene. Um, Job, we learned that Satan was before the throne of God accusing Job, but Job didn't know it. And in that scene in, in Zechariah chapter 3, uh, Zechariah knows it, Joshua, the high priest, knows it. It's an amazing scene. So this is, this is extraordinary, this is unusual and our tendency maybe with prophetic portions of scripture is to fixate on what seems unusual to us or is confusing. And we don't need to do that. Um, God didn't give these portions of his word to confuse us. Uh, he didn't give them to us uh, as some kind of secret code. Even these parts, yes, of his word are revelation, meant to reveal something, not hide it. And so we come this morning to a, a chapter 5, and we're, this morning, um, we're just going to give attention to the first four verses. I think that would be more helpful to look at the remaining verses of the chapter next week, God willing, if that's uh, what the Lord has. But I'm going to read uh, all 11 verses, just so we have the context of this vision in the night. And, and I know by doing that, I'm, I'm risking introducing some confusion, because you have a a woman uh, in, a, in a pot, and that's kind of weird, and uh, angels or, I, hold on, well, maybe I'm just setting the, uh, the stage for you to be curious and come back next Sunday to find out what verses 5 to 11 are. But the whole context here is about God removing sin uh, from Israel and the whole earth in the future. This is the word of the Lord. Zechariah writes, Then I lifted up my eyes again and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he, that is the angel that was with Zechariah, said to me, What do you see? 
And I said, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that is going forth over the face of the whole land. Surely everyone who steals will be purged away according to the writing on the one side and everyone who swears will be purged away according to the writing on the other side. I will make it go forth, declares Yahweh of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. Then the angel who was speaking with me went out and said to me, lift up now your eyes and see what this is going forth. So I said, what is it? And he said, this is the ephah going forth. And again, he said, this is their appearance in all the land. And behold, a lead cover was lifted up. And this is a woman sitting inside the ephah. And he said, this is wickedness. And he threw her down into the middle of the ephah and threw the lead weight on its opening. And I lifted up my eyes and saw, and behold, two women were coming out with the wind in their wings, and they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heavens. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, where are they taking the ephah? And he said to me to build a house for her in the land of Shinar. And when it is prepared, she will be set there on her own pedestal. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. It would be wise for us to pause and ask for his help and understanding. So let's do that now. God, we thank you for all scripture that you've given to us. And we believe with our very fiber into our bones that all scripture is, as you declare, breathed out by you. All scripture is profitable. But not all scripture is as easy to understand. And we recognize in humility that there are portions of these visions that you gave to your servant Zechariah that um, are somewhat mysterious to us. We pray that your spirit who gave these words ultimately envisioned to Zechariah would be present and active here this morning as our guide And we pray more than from a mere intellectual understanding. We pray for our lives to be transformed in light of the truth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. Sin ruins everything, doesn't it? Sin ruins everything. It corrupts, it spoils, it defiles, it destroys, it confuses, it divides, it messes things up, and eventually sin kills, for the wages of sin is death. Sin ruins everything, and I know you know that. But we need to reflect for just a moment at the outset this morning about how much pain and misery sin brings into the world. Um, We certainly know that in our own experience, but in Israel's 
case, in Israel and Judah's case, remember that they are at this time, it's about 520 years before the birth of Christ. Israel in the north at this time, the 10 tribes, they've been overrun by the Assyrians. That would happen a few hundred years earlier. They've been dispersed. They're roaming around. They are persecuted. They are separated and largely cut off. Judah in the south had been overrun in 586 by the Babylonians. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The temple had been burned. The city is rubble. It looks probably not all that unlike Gaza looks in these days. And the reason for all of that pain and misery and sorrow that Israel and Judah experienced was because of their sin, their disobedience to God, their rebellion against God, their their worshiping other idols, their, their multifaceted sin against God. First Kings, rather Second Kings, First and Second Kings. We've been studying in the evenings, Sunday evenings here at the church for a few years now, and, and those who have been going through that. We know how sinful Israel in the north and Judah in the south. It just it gets a little old, you know, learning about one sinful king after another, or even a good king like Uzziah or, or Hezekiah or others. They're good, and we're thinking, oh, finally, here's a guy who's going to get it right, and then he messes it up. And boy, does it mess things up. So that finally the nation is crushed. They are exiled. There's slaughter. Families are separated. Men, women, boys, and girls are, are abused and treated like slaves. And it is really a grace of God that there is any of them remaining. And they have returned by this time to the land. But even as they return and they're excited about rebuilding the temple, um, we find that they were opposed. They were opposed in the work of God from within and from without. From without, they had enemies of Israel that didn't think that rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple was such a good idea. They, they hate God and they hate God's chosen people. But they were also challenged from within. That's why God had to raise up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah is because the enemy wasn't just within, without, it was within the hearts as the people uh, they began the work of rebuilding the temple, but then they were tempted by fear and they were tempted by selfishness and they had their own jobs and they had their own houses they had to build. And Haggai, the prophet, talks about how they began to give preference and priority to building their own houses while the house of God and the worship of God was neglected for 15, 16 years Sin ruins. And we know that here this morning. In the world that we live in, in the culture that we're in, it ruins everything. You talk about flying the ointment. There's, There's no part of life that we live now that isn't touched in some way, shape, or form by sin or at least the consequences of sin. We are under, as a, uh, the whole earth is under the curse of God. God is opposed to sin, and therefore God is against this world. He is kind and he's gracious, and he continues to allow the rain to fall and the sun to shine. But make no mistake that the ultimate answer for why there's storms and all kinds of 
frustrations in this world is because this world is in rebellion against God and God is opposed to sin. It's on, this world is under the curse of God. We just deal with it. Mosquitoes ruin a perfectly good summer evening. And, and we laugh about it. But then we think about mosquitoes and ticks that have diseases in them that can actually kill you. And I, I, I almost went there. I mean, just basics. Uh, never mind things out there that can kill you and this, what's wrong with this culture. Think about our, our families. Think about our relationships. Even the best of our relationships, even between, between believers, a husband and wife who love one another, we, we still are selfish. <laughs> we can still ruin a perfectly good day. All it takes is one of us to say a comment that, that was out of line or was selfish, and it kind of just spoils the evening. And the rest of the day, and there's this internal, maybe you never have these kinds of things as those of you who are married in your marriage, but, and I'm sure Carissa doesn't have any such thoughts about me, but, um, but you know, I mean, it just takes a little bit of sin, a little bit of selfishness to ruin a time together as a couple or, or as a family. This time of year, we get together at Thanksgiving or Christmas as extended families. How many of us are just so used to dealing with the different, we call it dynamics, Family dynamics. <laughs> what, a, what an interesting phrase. What do we mean by family dynamics? We mean the different personalities, but in particular what we mean is the different forms of sinful behavior and attitudes that we all bring and contribute to the family and the complexity that that brings to our family gatherings suspecting is so-and-so thinking that oh so-and-so gave that gift because they're trying to out gift me this year and all the different kinds of nonsense they spent more time with those in-laws than they did with us that kind of thing and you know as well as I do that kind of thing will have families not even talking to each other for years I'm not going to ask for a show of hands but probably most of us in the room who are adults of any age could raise our hands and say, yeah, we know what it is to have family members who won't even get together. Sin ruins everything. Sin ruins, spoils, corrupts, destroys. Sin is terrible. And we have to live with it. So it's right that we kind of get along with our lives. It's, it's right that we rejoice in the Lord and we have the promises of the Lord and we have the grace of the Lord and we know that we can, should just carry on with our lives. But, but we need to recognize that God knows and his word declares that we are living out our lives in the midst of the rubble of a spiritual war zone and it is catastrophic. With that, then we are in a place to understand chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, because this sixth vision given to Zechariah in the night is, along with the other visions, largely given as a comfort to those who are humble and repentant in Israel, those who have returned. Now, now no mistake, we're going to see it's also a little discomforting if you're still sin in any way, shape, or form, uh, these verses can't help but be a little uncomfortable. But still they are given largely as God's response to his people, giving kind words 
comforting words. Zechariah's vision had begun in the night with the angel of the Lord back in chapter 1, verse 12, saying to the Lord, How long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? In verse 13, Yahweh, or the Lord, answered the angel, answered, that is Christ, the angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Christ. Yahweh, the Lord, answered the angel who was speaking with Zechariah with good words, comforting words. And in these series of visions, God is giving words to encourage Zechariah, to encourage Haggai, to encourage Joshua, the high priest, one of the leaders of Israel, Zerubbabel, another one of the leaders of the Israel. God is trying to encourage and strengthen the hearts of a very small remnant of earnest believers to get about the business of God's work, even in the face of all the opposition. And he knows, God knows for for them and for us, that if there is no hope on the horizon, our efforts at work will just collapse. We give up. If we don't have hope, our energy, our will to work is, is evaporates. So God is giving a series of messages primarily to encourage and comfort his people. And in short, let me say right up front, before we get into the details of verses 1 through 4, that here we have a very comforting passage because we are told in chapter 5 verses 1 to 4 that the day is coming when God will remove every vestige of sin along with sinners from Israel and from the whole earth. He'll remove sin in its totality. There is no way that you can have a future of joy which God has already promised to Israel and Judah here in, in, through the visions to Zechariah. There's no way you can have the joy of the city being rebuilt of, of elsewhere we learn in scripture of in the millennial kingdom of boys and girls playing in the streets. We can't even have boys and girls walk out our door on a street these days without fear of them being harmed. That's the kind of culture we live in. And we just have, we kind of get used to it. There's no way you can have a future of joy without the removal of sin in totality. The only way we can have a future in which God wipes away every tear from our eyes, as we learn in Revelation, is a day when God wipes away all sin from the earth. The two go hand in hand. Where there is sin, you can count on it. There will be tears because sin begets nothing but ruin and misery and sorrow. And so these are words of comfort that the day is coming when God will take Israel and Judah, a people among whom there has been sin generationally and continues on down to this day. Even as there is to this day primarily a denying of Christ, of Jesus as the Messiah, a reliance upon self-righteousness among the Jewish people as a whole, along with all people on earth. The day is coming when that kind of self-righteousness, that pride, all that sin will be removed. And all those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ and have their sins dealt with, and all those who want to persist in their sin, they will be removed. That's the only way you have a future of joy and of hope is when you remove sin and sinners. And Paul 
the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says, we know right now that the whole creation groans, groans because of sin. We know what it is to groan of sin. And again, if there is to be a day when there will be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more crying, there must be a day when God removes all sin and sinners. And that is the vision that God gives to Zechariah. Now look with me a little more closely now at verses 1 to 4. I want to start, I actually want to give you a little pattern here for studying prophecy. Our tendency is to fixate on the things that we don't know. So I did risk reading verses 5 through 11, some of you being understandably somewhat fixated on that strange scene of like, what, what's a woman doing in an ephah in a basket and being hauled off? Okay, we'll get to that. But it, it, it's tied together, and we'll see in a moment that sin is personal and sin is powerful. But some of those things I understand. We have questions about. I still have questions about some of the teaching here, I, I wonder. But as a general rule, when we're studying prophecy, whether it be Daniel or Zechariah or Isaiah or Revelation, start with observations that are plain and clear. Start there. Don't go running off into fixating on what you don't understand. Start with what is kind of on the surface, what's clear in the text. So I want to do that with you right now. Okay, first of all, what does Zechariah see? He sees a vision in the night. In verse 1, he sees a scroll. Start there. It's an observation. It's a scroll. Now, you know what a scroll is. I trust it's a, in Zechariah's day, it would have been a, a piece of uh, parchment that was made either from papyrus reed down in Egypt or animal skin. Those were really the two mediums they had to write something on. And they would... Uh, fit them together, glue them together in various ways, and then that long scroll would be rolled up around two sticks, right? And so it would be rolled together, and, and you might think of it as the Torah, which means the law. That A scroll was the primary form, if you will, of the Bible that they had in their day. The printing press wasn't developed. The, the modern form of binding a Bible wasn't developed. And so God's word was in that day largely among the people in the form of scrolls, okay? So it's a scroll. He sees a scroll. That's important. A scroll is the word of God. A scroll is, you might think of it, it's the Bible. He sees a flying scroll. It becomes clear. This isn't just any scroll. So it's a scroll. Secondly, observation, he sees a flying scroll, not a flying squirrel, <laughs> a flying scroll, scroll. It's flying. I mean, it's moving around like a, I guess you might think of like a flying carpet, right? I mean, it actually has ability and power and propulsion in, of, in itself. It, it's, it's alive. It's moving. It's active. That shouldn't be surprising because we learn in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Well, this isn't a sword here, but it is living and it is active. It is a flying scroll. In other words, it's mobile. It's not stationary. This scroll, uh, you can't hide from it. You, you can't comfort yourself if you're a sinner saying, oh, well, that's reserved in the British Museum uh, and, and under glass. It, I don't have to worry. No, this, this, this scroll's moving. 
It flies. It, it can go wherever it wants. It doesn't have to work around hills. Doesn't have to work its way through trees. Doesn't have no. It can fly. It's flying scroll. Thirdly, it's a large scroll. Large scroll. Third observation. It's twenty cubits in length and ten cubits in width. Uh, this is really. Uh, I want to give you a little um, tool here. Anytime you see cubits in your Bible the Old Testament, you just take half of the number and add it. So uh, basically a cubit is 18 inches. It's a foot and a half, all right? So if it's 20 cubits, that means if you divide 20 in half, oh, a little math class. Some of you right now are starting to break out. Uh, I'm back in elementary school. What's half of 20, class? Add 10 to 20. What do you get, class? 30 feet. So it's a cubit's about 18 inches. So it's a 30 foot long scroll. Um, that, this room is about 50, 50 or so. So it's not quite the length of this, but it is a, yeah, a long scroll. And uh, some of you have gone to museums where you've seen scrolls. I got a picture uh, this week uh, from the Nest. We're out visiting uh, and saw a scroll uh, at a museum. Scrolls could be very lengthy as, as you have the Bible written on all of it, the Old Testament law. So it's 30 feet in length, but that's not as impressive as its width. Now, scrolls typically from uh, older scrolls that we have, you know, they're like, they're like this wide or this wide. This scroll is uh, 10 cubits wide. What's half of 10, class? <laughs> What's half of 10, class? <laughs> Five. Add five to ten, class. What is ten plus five? Fifteen feet wide. It's thirty feet long. It's fifteen feet wide. That is unusual. Uh, you don't have a fifty. I mean, that would be kind of for the local rabbi to break out a fifteen-foot scroll. It's going to be kind of difficult, right? What's going on? Interestingly, the dimensions of when God gave the, the instructions for the building of the tabernacle in the wilderness. To Moses and the people, the dimensions of the holy place, that's the room of the tabernacle just before the holy of holies, the holy place, interestingly, was, guess what? 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. Hmm. And interesting, a little bit later in Israel's history, when God had Solomon build the temple was no longer a tabernacle. It was a, a temple of stone and timber. The porch of Solomon's temple, the entryway into the worship of God, and the porch, the place from which God's law was read, was, you guessed it, 30 feet long by 15 feet wide. So this scroll, these are not arbitrary dimensions. They are the size of the holy place in the tabernacle, the porch of Solomon's temple. In other words, this scroll clearly has to do with God, his house, his worship, his law, his rule. You get it? It's a scroll the size of the holy place and associated with the temple. Thirdly, uh, rather, a fourth observation I want you to notice 
is this scroll has writing on both sides. It has writing on both sides. We see this uh, in chapter 5, verse 3. It has writing on one side, and everyone who swears will be purged according to the writing on the other side. The tablets that when, God, when Moses went to get the Ten Commandments from God, God gave the Ten Commandments on tablets to Moses, we are told they were written on one side and the other. That's a clear indication here. This scroll is representing God's law, his covenant relationship to Israel and Judah. It has writing on both sides. It's similar to the tablets upon which God wrote the Ten Commandments. And a fifth observation is that the scroll contains the law of God. How do we know that? Because there are two commands in the ten that are emphasized. Um, The curse will be upon, verse 3, everyone who steals. That's the eighth commandment. And uh, everyone who swears. And it's clear down in verse 4, that's not just saying a bad or filthy word. And that's not, um, that reference is not to bearing false witness. Verse 4 makes it clear the swearing here has to do with swearing falsely in God's name. In other words, using the Lord's name in vain. Very interesting that the using the Lord's, if you divide the Ten Commandments into two, we're doing some math here this morning. The first five largely have to do with our relationship to God, the second half, the, the latter five commands, largely have to do with our relationship to one another. The command, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, it has a central place in the first half of the Ten Commandments. And the command to not steal has a central place in the second half of the Ten Commandments. In other words, God isn't hung up on... Um, on just taking his name in vain on stealing, as if, uh, well, in the latter day, if you murdered, oh, you just sinned by murdering somebody, but you didn't steal, oh, okay, that's okay, come on, (laughs) right? No, no, these two commands are representative of the two halves of the Ten Commandments. They are representative of commands having to do how we relate to and honor God and how we relate to other men and women made in the image of God. So, in summary, this is not a flying carpet. This is a scroll representing the holy law of God, his holy worship, and his holy sovereign rule over his people. Now, with those observations, the scroll, I hope, is not as strange, maybe, as it seemed at first. Clearly, God is revealing to Zechariah that His word, God's word, is going to be the last word. God's word is going to be the last word. And part of the reason I read, I went on to read verses 5 through 11 this morning, is is it's interesting to me anyways, that it seems at first backwards. You would think you'd have the scene about this woman who recognized, represents wickedness, being carried off to Shinar, which is Babylon, where the Tower of Babel was. And she's given there a pedestal in verse 11. You would think that that would be first, 
at the beginning of chapter 5, and after her, then you'd have this talk about removing of all sin. But I don't know if this is accurate, but this is my inclination, is that God is, is, is essentially saying, no, I have the first word and I have the last word. In other words, I just want to make clear that whatever happens else in future and prophecy about sin and wickedness in the last days, God's word is first and God's word is last. God's word is, is presumptive. It, it, will, it, it has the, the priority. There is nothing that comes after God's word, nothing that happens in history that will undo what God declares in verses 1 through 4, the removal of sin. Well, with that, I want to, just for a few minutes now, uh, learn together, glean together, what is it that God is saying? We've made some observations. First of all, I just have three points. Sin is personal. First, sin is personal, and God's judgment of sin is and will be personal. Sin is personal. Again, the scroll has on it, it represents the law of God. It has on one side the command, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain. It has on it the other command, you shall not steal. Every sin committed by men and women, including us, is always personal. David, when he confesses his sin with Bathsheba and murdering of Uriah the Hittite, he says, against you, O God, against you only I have sinned. And he's not denying that he sinned against Bathsheba and others, but what he's saying is when he sinned, it was very personal that he had sinned against God. Sin is not a disease. Sin is not a uh, uh, cold or, or something that you can catch. It's not an impersonal force. Sin is always personal. And notice here that sin is against God. And notice that the judgment, verse 3, is against everyone. One of the worst phrases I think that was ever coined, as well-meaning as it is, is that that phrase, well, God hates the sin, but not the sinner. It's not that simple. It's just not that simple. And, and frankly, that is just not true. Does God love sinners? Oh, yes. We're not forgetting John three sixteen. For God so loved the world. Thank God that he loves men and women like me and like you, dead in our trespasses and sins. He loves us when we're sinners. Oh, yes. But it's not that clean. Because where you have sin, listen, you have a sinner. If, if sin wasn't personal, then you don't need to have Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, dying on the cross. You could just have sin as this disease or this spiritual, ethereal vapor suffering. But no, sin is personal. And therefore, it's men and women who sin, and everyone who swears will be purged away. God will, in the last days, remove sinners. Sinners from Israel and sinners from the whole earth. That 
that judgment of God, notice it's a curse, verse 3. That's personal. That, that the scroll, God describes it as the curse. A curse is from someone, and in this case, the curse is from God. God curses sin and sinners. They are under the curse. This is serious. Sin is not safe because whether you know it or not, this is God's world and the kingdom of God is coming in the kingdom of Christ and sin is against him and is against men and women made in his image and therefore God is against sin and sinners. And so he curses sin and sinners. He will purge them away, verse 3. And God says, verse 4, I will make it go forth. Do you see how personal it is? God makes this scroll fly. This scroll which is a curse, a judgment upon sin and sinners and which will effectively purge sin and sinners from the earth. It comes from God himself. Sin is personal. Secondly, this morning, God's curse upon sinners is active and will not be avoided. You can't escape. We see in Israel right now in Gaza that the immense challenge that Israel has with Hamas, evil, wicked, vile men hiding among innocent women and children and the issue that Israel has, it is, it is very, very difficult. And sin right now is used to that kind of reality. Sinners are used to that kind of reality. You can always hide. You can always somehow evade judgment, at least to some degree, but not so in the last days. There will be nowhere where sinners will be able to hide it will go, God's judgment will go forth, verse 14, I'm sorry, of chapter 4, verse 14, we learned that the Lord is the Lord of all the earth, and in chapter 5, verse 3, this curse is going to go over the face of the whole same word, earth. It will start with the land of Israel and Judah, but the whole world is God's, and this judgment will go to the whole earth. In Revelation chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, we learn there that in the future days, when this judgment of God comes upon sin and sinners, that then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man, men without exception but all sinners, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand you can cry upon the rocks to fall on you you can dig the deepest tunnel you want you can hide in the most remote cave you want but there is no escape from this scroll this scroll which is the judgment and curse of God it will find everyone notice the verse three everyone who steals there won't be a a relative percentage god won't settle with well i i i got rid of most of them 
everyone who steals and everyone who swears falsely will be purged away according to the writing of the scroll. Wow. There's nowhere you can hide, including verse 4, your house. That's where a lot of people tend to think they can hide. In the privacy of their home, surrounded by their possessions or their, maybe their occupation and their, their attainments. No. God's judgment will go everywhere. Sin is found. And thirdly and finally this morning, not only is sin personal, not only is God's judgment going to be upon sinners and unable to be avoided. Thirdly, and finally, and obviously, and already stated, God's judgment of sinners will consume them and all they possess and worship. Verse 4, it will consume them utterly, completely, God says, I will make it go forth. This is his law. This is his will. The scroll representing God's wrath of the violation of his ways. I will make it go forth, says Yahweh of hosts, and it will enter the house of the thief and the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. And it will spend the night within that house and consume it with its timber and stones. You can't escape it if you're a sinner. You can't hide. Doesn't matter how much money you have. Doesn't matter how much of a, what your business is. Doesn't matter what your title is. Doesn't matter what your family is. This judgment will find sinners in the last days. It will reside with them until such time as they and all that they rely on and worship will be utterly consumed by the fiery wrath of God. You see that? And it is, this is a sobering passage, a vision on a number of fronts. One of them would be that through the prophet Haggai, we learned that the people were giving attention to their own homes and building their own homes with panels and timbers and stones and such, and neglecting the house of God and the worship of God. And there is a warning here. You want God's house and God's worship to have the priority. This is, these are serious warnings. And I said up front that these are comforting words, and some of you may be thinking right now, these are comforting words? These are comforting, not feeling too comfortable. Well, that's right. Even if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's good and healthy for us to fear and tremble. We have been forgiven of our sins, but we ought to fear sinning because sinning is personal against God. There's nothing light about sin. There's nothing easy about sin, nothing low-key about sin. So even if we're believers, we should be a little bit uncomfortable. I want to come back to that question. I do want to say, though, if, if you're here this morning and you're apart from Christ, I need to say, dear friend, I'm so glad you're here. 
you should be uncomfortable. You should be. And I'd be lying to you if I told you anything different. There is no safety in just you being you. All of us have sinned. You may be a very nice person. Maybe you're nicer than some of those Christians, unfortunately, you know, who maybe aren't so nice. But the reality is you, like all of us, have sinned against God. You are a sinner. You have taken, and I have taken God's name in vain. Every one of us has. And every one of us has stolen. Every one of us. You've stolen somebody's name when you gossiped. You've stolen God's name because you bear his image and you've misused it. You've stolen a look of lust at somebody using their body in ways that was not yours, and so on and so on. We have all sinned. And verses 1 to 4 describe, in part, the end and the expectation for all sinners. God's curse will be coming for you. Is, is that too strong to say? The flying scroll will come for you and he will find you. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the scriptures say. And so this morning I would urge you, urge you to confess your sin and your sinfulness and cry out to God to be saved from this judgment to come. And the good news is this morning that God who judges sinners also saves sinners who turn to him. He saves sinners. How does he do that? How does he take us from being a person who is going to be removed from the earth and sent to hell for our sin? How does he, how does he save sinners? How can I be saved from the flying scroll that will find me wherever I go or wherever I hide? The answer is back in Zechariah chapter 3. It's found all throughout scripture, but I just want to go here in closing. The answer is found by you confessing your sin, crying out to God to be saved, and listen, trusting in God's Son, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus removes sin from sinners. In Zechariah 4, we remember we had a scene where Joshua, the high priest, who was doubtless an earnest man, but he represented Israel. He, Israel was guilty of sin, and, and so he was covered in filthy robes. They're representing wickedness and iniquity. And the angel of the Lord, who is none other than Jesus, says to, to, rather, to Joshua, he says to the angels around Joshua in verse 4, remove the filthy garments from him. And again, the angel, that is Christ, said to Joshua, See, I have made your iniquity pass away from you and will clothe you with festal robes. Jesus, for those who call upon him earnestly and sincerely, confessing their sin and crying out to God to be saved from the judgment to come, those who cry out, and ask Jesus to save them from their sin, Jesus is able to remove your sin. And not only that, we, see, we saw in chapter 3, verse 4, 
He's able to remove your iniquity, to remove your sin. How? Because on the cross, when he came, he took in himself the curse of the flying scroll for you. Do you see it? All the sins that you're guilty of and I'm guilty of, on the cross, Christ became as though he was guilty, even though he wasn't. And the judgment of God fell upon him, consumed him in the wrath of God. He died. He was buried. But he rose on the third day because he was able to satisfy the judgment for your sins and mine so that as you trust in him, your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 4, he says, I will clothe you with festal robes. Not only does he remove your sin, but he comes alongside, removes your filthy rags, as it were, your sin, and then he clothes you in his own righteous deeds. So in closing, dear believer, yes, chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, are very comforting words for believers. You say, I'm not so sure, I'm a little scared. No, 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 no. They are very comfortable words. Are you in Christ? I... I, I think so. I, I think I've trusted in Christ. I, I pray I have. I, okay, you're in Christ. Your sins have been removed. You're clothed in righteousness. And you're headed, dear believer, for a future when Christ will return to this earth, reign from Israel and Judah, and you will live with him in a place. Are you ready? Are you ready? No sin. No sin. Not one single person who will be a sinner because all will be removed and purged away. Every person, including yourself, but every person you meet will be righteous through and through. And the joy of living in a society, in a kingdom like that, dear believer, let your heart wander a little bit in anticipation and be comforted. Oh yeah, sin ruins everything right now and we groan, but the day is coming when we will groan no more. Praise God. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins and we come now to the table to remember that. Bless us now as we come. In Jesus' name, amen.